to reply guys the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us i am kate willett and i'm julia claire and t- uh, wow what a terrible week so we took a week off because julia was out of town and yeah you know it was a busy time <laughs> but uh we're back and um the, the, wow is there more to talk about than ever yeah, it's been a pretty nightmarish week uh, in Supreme Court news. Um, a week ago today, the Dobbs versus Jackson ruling was um, handed down, effectively overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, and since then, the you know it's summer. The Supreme Court is very busy handing down horrific six to three or five to four decisions that just come they're just making shit up at this point because it's they're not um kind of taking into account precedent or the current laws or in some cases even the constitution in the case of um separation of church and state there have been a number of rulings that have really eroded separation of church and state, both the one regarding the main, basically the tax dollars have to go to um, private religious schools and also the um, Kendall ruling that ruled in favor of a public school football coach who was leading his football team in prayers in Washington state. Um, Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion and mischaracterized what he was doing as a personal private prayer. Um, But Sotomayor wrote the defense, wrote the dissent rather, and she took the unusual step of including images in her dissent um, to prove that, to basically say Gorsuch was lying because it wasn't a personal private prayer. If you look at the images, he is very clear. This coach is like at the 50 yard line after every game, kind of not letting anyone leave until this prayer was finished. So bad stuff. Uh, There was that big EPA ruling yesterday that um, where the Supreme Court curtailed what the EPA is allowed to regulate in terms of uh, CO2 emissions. And that's really going to, I mean. Yeah, they're, they're stripping the entire administrative state. Like, you know, I mean, in terms of like regulatory bodies, I saw somebody make the point that like, you know, this 
<laughs> like you, you, you strip all the regulatory bodies and you lose the, the power to even like regulate things like a uh, safety for airplanes. I mean, to me, this isn't like the, the, this is an unelected body of nine people who can basically do whatever they want. They have lifetime appointments. And I, I mean, I, I've come around to the position that, you know, it's, it's it's tough because the Supreme Court has done some good things in the past, but they've also, for the most part, been um, kind of a legislative body like for corporations, just granting cor corporations more power that uh, Congress would never be able to do. Um, and I, you know, to me, it's just like the Supreme Court needs to go, ideally, or, you know, if that can't go, um, it would be, you know, there's, there's ways that Congress can limit what the Supreme Court can even rule on and, you know, kind of downgrade it in importance. But I mean, like, I think that the idea that it's in any way good or acceptable for nine unelected people to have you know, this much power over the government or any power at this point. I mean, this is, I, it just, I think that it's time to, to, to sort of see this body for what it is, which is a profoundly undemocratic entity. Yeah. And I think, well, it's funny because um, Keith Olbermann really got a ton of flack for saying on Twitter that the Supreme Court should be dissolved. Yeah. Um, and I, I was very pleasantly surprised by, by that rant, honestly. Um, but it's not, the problem isn't just that they're unelected. Uh, and that is, the, obviously that is a big problem. They are appointed by an elected official, uh, the president. So, the problem is, is that a third of the court was appointed by Donald Trump, who lost the popular vote by millions of votes. So it's like, it's undemocratic on top of undemocratic on top of undemocratic. I, yeah. And like, I mean, George W. Bush, his Supreme Court appointments, which were Alito and Roberts, I mean, you can also make the argument that even though they were they were appointed in his second term, yet he probably would have never been able to, he probably would have never been president at all if he had, I mean, if he had lost the 2000 election as he should have, yeah. um, which was also a Supreme Court engineered win for him. But yeah, I mean, the, the shit that they're doing with voting rights, they, the Supreme Court said that a, this week that a Louisiana congressional map actually can be used to the one, one, one that the Republican state legislature drew in which they packed all the majority of the state's black votes into one district um, out of the six Louisiana congressional districts. Um, a third of the population in Louisiana is black. Um, so this is obviously very intentional. 
Um, and a lower court judge said that the map violates the Voting Rights Act and the Supreme Court overturned that decision. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, you know, obviously there's like the immediate, like, you know, stop the bleeding, which like the Democratic Party has shown that they're definitely not going to do. But, you know, it's a... I mean, just the the very existence of this entity um, is just, I mean, it it, it exists to serve the ruling class and to, you know, give corporations unprecedented power. And yes, like the Supreme Court has in times, you know, granted people rights, but it's also taken rights away. And I don't know. I mean, I think like the idea that, I mean, okay, you know, even if like (laughs) Joe Biden's not going to do this, but, you know, then, you know, Republicans, let's say Joe Biden packs the court, then, okay, Republicans pack the court. I mean, they're they're not going to do any of that. So it's sort of like not even worth debating. But I mean, you know, it's just like, it's crazy that we have these like nine God kings that can just do whatever they want, you know? And I, I mean, I ultimately do agree with AOC that the justices who lied under oath should be impeached and removed. Um, I think that's a, that's a great first, that would be a great first step. Even my dad agrees with that. He, he really wanted to let me know specifically that he agrees with AOC. He's like, I can't <laughs> believe what I'm saying, but I agree with AOC. Um, so, you know, the legitimacy, the legitimacy of the court has been, has been lost to my dad. So. Yeah, it's not legitimate. They're, they're, they're on notice is what I I'm mean- saying. You know, I think it's just like this. This has been an interesting week because it, this is the first time I've seen even really mainstream liberals start to realize the depths to which like our institutions cannot protect us. There, it's yeah, yeah, and also the depths to or the lengths to which the Democratic Party is not is not going to go. Of course. Um, no, I mean, they're not, I mean, the Democratic Party is not, they're not going to do anything. Like the, the ideas that, you know, AOC is throwing out there. I think it's good that she's throwing ideas out there. I think it's good for, you know, the more people sort of understand what the situation is here. And by the situation, I mean that like the Democratic Party is not on the side of protecting people. Like, the, you know, it's a, it's basically a useless fundraising entity i mean i think you know if i live in a purple state or something i i would still vote for them for harm reduction and i'm still going to vote in primaries for the you know the furthest left yeah candidates or whatever but i mean you know it's like this is like all these ideas like you know restraining judicial review, codifying Roe into law, making abortion clinics on federal lands. Yeah, that's, you know, those things are good ideas. But at this point, the purpose of asserting them is just to help people realize that they're not going to happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, 
the, I, I think that we're headed for some pretty bad times here and I don't really know how bad, I mean, like the worst thing that could, not the worst thing probably, but an, an extremely bad thing that could happen um, is a uh, Supreme court could hear a fetal, fetal personhood case and decide that a, a fetus is a person. And that would mean, you know, a national abortion ban, of course, but also that, you know, you could be charged with murder for abortion or even miscarriage, you know, if they, oh, you didn't need the right thing or whatever, you know, or did, you know, did something that they think endangers the life of the fetus, you know, it's like, and I, you know, Republicans are not, I think they're kind of giving up the game because this is a pretty unpopular platform, even um, policy, like even with their base, but I don't know. I don't, I think the reason that they're not more worried about like winning elections again is because of the shit, like you're talking about in Louisiana, like they're fully rigging the system, you know, and they've been doing it for a long time to ensure basically permanent Republican control, which I think- yeah. We see, I, I think my personal prediction is I think from 2024 on, we see most likely permanent Republican control for a long time, you know, with exceptions in some states. Right. And they did, I mean, the Supreme Court announced yesterday that they would be hearing a case next term that deals with this like very fringe far right theory called independent legislature theory. Um, that would give Republicans even more control over future elections. Um, and it's kind of like exactly what the people on January 6th wanted. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, that movement is so, you know, has been so effective. I mean, in terms of like, they've gotten a lot of their goals, like for, you know, to make it even more legally possible, legally air quotes, right? Like to just, you know, throw people's votes in the trash and to just rid any remaining democracy that we have. I mean, I, I, I you know, I think that the way that it's going, the, I think that it's, it looks at this point, like the midterms are gonna be a Republican sweep. I. I do not think that Joe Biden will get elected again. I, I could be wrong. I don't know what's going to happen in the next two years, but you know, the fuck, fucking inflation, gas prices, their complete pathetic inaction in the face of this Dobbs decision. I mean, I don't know. I think whenever it is that Republicans, you know, take over and they already have kind of permanently in a lot of states, but I, I don't, I, I, I do, I do think that it's, you know, kind of going to be permanent GOP rule here until, you know, people are willing to, you know, do things that are sort of outside the electoral system um, and, you know, range of things that could be, you know, one from like, you know, a, a bigger, labor movement that can wield more political power to things that can't be said on a podcast, you know? Yeah. Well, bad week. Yeah. I mean, it is a bad week, but I mean, the only thing good about it is it's like, I think more people than ever have like a realistic view of the situation now, you know? Kate, tell us about so this week's interview. 
So I interviewed Shanti Singh, who is a activist with Tenants Together, which is an, uh, she's an organizer in San Francisco. And we talked about the tenant movement in the United States and, you know, the eviction protections people are pushing for, um, public housing and why it's needed, why the market urbanism, aka Yimby movement is woefully insufficient in thinking that we can solve all of our housing issues through uh, market-based means. And it was really good. It was awesome. She's really cool. And I think you'll enjoy the interview. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for, for bearing with us uh, in our week off. And we, uh, we hope to see you again next week. Please rate and subscribe, write us a review on Apple Podcasts and we love you. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. It's just me, Kate, and I'm also very excited to welcome an incredibly special guest that I'm extremely stoked to have on the podcast. Um, she is uh, an organizer in San Francisco with Tenants Together and also just a very, very fun Twitter follow. Uh, welcome to the show, Shanti Singh. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So... Uh, I think, you know, we're definitely going to get into abortion, but I wanted to start with giving listeners a little bit of context for the work that you're doing. What is Tenants Together? What kind of stuff are you working on? Just, you know, the broad overview. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, Tenants Together, we're actually a statewide organization, but we're headquartered in San Francisco. Um, so my coworkers are all over the state, but um, we're a coalition of 50 tenants rights housing justice organizations that's primarily rooted in low income communities and communities of color. Um, and a lot of what we do is, you know, like we represent that base. So like for me, like I have to deal with legislators in Sacramento. That's my part of the job, but I'm really doing it so that um, everybody else doesn't have to um, and they can get to the work of organizing. So um, we really support the formation of new tenant unions across the city. We support the, uh, across the state, sorry, we support the passage of rent control laws and tenant protections um, in cities across the state. And then we have our sort of like anchor coalition, but we're also trying to create new tenant unions all the time. And we don't force them to join our coalition, but they usually do. And so that's kind of like, uh, you know, it's growing the movement um, across the state, especially in places where people really aren't very well protected at all. That's amazing. Um, do you happen to know how many other states have anything similar? Um, there's a, I mean, it's really exciting to see um, all of the different housing justice coalitions that are emerging that are statewide. I think uh, New York's actually one of the best examples is the Upstate Downstate Alliance. So uh, we really love the work that they're doing, but they, and they were able to kind of, like I said, like they, you know, it's not just New York City, they were able to bring people from like, you know, there's Buffalo, there's Rochester, there's Northern, there's like upstate, et cetera. And they were able to kind of create that statewide coalition. So that's always my favorite one to bring up is, is in New York. But um, there's also a national right to the city alliance, which we're a member of. Um, and so I think a lot of state formations and, and city formations like sit under that too. So I don't know, there's a lot, there's a lot popping off. I think you'll see more tenants together as well, at least as long as this housing crisis keeps getting even worse. <laughs> You know, I'm thinking today, you know, this weekend, obviously, you know, most most people who would listen to this show and and friends are are going to be probably in a pretty uh, bad and sad mood about this horrible um, 
assault on, you know, our rights and, and what's to come. And, you know, I, I, I did want to talk to you about housing, but I, I also want to kind of put it in context. Um, you know, I think we're very used to thinking about housing as very separate from feminist concerns. And, you know, to me, it doesn't, doesn't feel that way. And I guess, you know, as someone who has been, you know, organizing tenants for a long time, like in what ways is the housing justice movement connected to everything else we're seeing right now? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, ultimately, it's just your housing is the number one thing you have to often sort out in your life before you can do literally anything else. I mean, one of the, it's one of our member organizations, actually, is this amazing, it's its own statewide coalition. Um, it's called a California Latinas for Reproductive Justice. And like, we have been working with them a lot over the last few years, because, you know, they're organizing something called the like Union de Vecinas, like, so like neighbors, um, but it's very like a feminist um, Latina tenants union uh, in, in Bell Gardens, which is part of like outside Los Angeles or kind of in greater LA. So there's like that, that, that's kind of an example, I think, of stuff that we're doing where it's like we see that really, really, the really obvious connection between housing and reproductive justice issues. But um, as just a matter of like, it's just it, as a matter of basic security for one thing, um, but also that, um, you know, health and habitability issues affect women differently in their housing. Um, you know, uh, there's like women with children, um, you know, that they might have separate issues, like intersecting issues, but they have issues as renters, right? And they're often disproportionately um, impacted by housing crisis issues and evictions, et cetera. It's often, it's women of color, it's women with children um, that can be used to discriminate against folks. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm kind of rambling, but there's just so many different, it's because there's so many different examples that are opening up in my mind about how that's, that's all related. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking two ways that it feels super related to me is I'm thinking about like the amount of women and queer people that are stuck in really shitty situations, whether it's because, you know, of a, a horrible romantic relationship or because, you know, they can't move away from their homophobic or trans parent, transphobic parents, um, you know, and, and just like, to me, housing is so fundamental to safety just in any way to be able to just have a roof over your head that is you know a, a safe comfortable place to live that doesn't have black molds all over it and you know has heating in new york especially san francisco it's a little more temperate climate you know yeah yeah um although it gets pretty chilly in sf proper but um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I forgot how cold it gets there. I was freezing the other night. Yeah, as soon as the sun goes down, all of a sudden it's like switches over. But no, you, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I should have I should have clarified, of course, that this is not just an issue that affects, you know, women. It also affects queer people. Um, but and, and everybody, and et cetera. It affects everybody. It affects everybody. But in terms of, yeah, I guess your, you know, your ability to have a child. But it's it's really it is really relevant. I mean, I think about too, like, I mean, I think about stories where, you know, there was a there was a woman who was kicked out um, with her children of her apartment. She was evicted because she was preg had a high risk pregnancy and was reporting a black mold problem. Right. And that's not something that happened in SF, but that happened in California. It happened in the Central Valley. But you hear stories like that all the time. And of course, in San Francisco, you know, we we, we think we're 
we try to be, but I don't know, sometimes our politicians aren't really living up to what they're saying about that. But, you know, we're saying right now that we're a haven for, and have historically been a haven for queer folks all over the, the country to be able to move here. And we're not living up to that. And that's, I mean, disproportionately, like, like trans people especially just are disproportionately homeless they're disproportionately on our streets a lot of them are transitional age youth um and so yeah they've like they've left you know they've come to san francisco alone with no money because they had to leave a really horrible family situation we're not building housing for them so i mean that's just another example could go on forever i you know i um there's i definitely want to talk to you about the like weirdo right wing turn that San Francisco politics has taken like the Chesa recall and the you know the school situation it's really strange but let's stay on the topic of like you know tenant organizing for a minute so you and I first connected because man there's this movement movement I'm like putting it in quotes that I found out about just because these random reply guys started harassing me um called the yimby movement it stands Mm -hmm. for yes in my backyard Mm -hmm. and uh you know what i understand is this started in reaction to nimbyism which is like a real thing that is bad Um, but like truly not wanting the the traditional kind of stereotype is um you know like a rich person that does not want affordable housing to be built in their neighborhood because you know property values and all all shitty old rich white people stuff you know Mm -hmm. but um with you know tenants together and uh dean preston who is one of the founders of the organization yeah so there's been this kind of conflict between the type of tenant organizing that you guys are doing and the sort of new uh free market uh idea of like that we can simply uh solve all the issues by flooding the market with supply of housing and you know deregulating things further for developers and yeah i mean it's you know very complicated there's (laughs) clearly situations where housing needs to be built but i was wondering if you can talk a little bit about you know like where is their alignment with these folks and where is you know tenant organizing a very different thing that this sort of free market movement cannot uh solve yeah i think that um that that emb like that they they do look at things really differently now i'll say i'll start with what our point of agreement is our point of agreement is it's like if you want to you know rezone or, or, you know, change or, or build housing in all of these really deeply exclusionary communities like, a you know, like Beverly Hills or Palo Alto or Atherton and stuff uh, like go ahead, go right ahead. We are cool with that. Um, and we always have been. Um, so I'll start, I'll start off with that. If you're really, your goal is that you want to, that all you really want to do if, um, if you're, you know, an urbanist or Yimby or whatever, although I don't really concede the term urbanist to them um i think that's there's so there's socialist urbanism too but um but if market that's urbanism. It, and there's yeah. also market urbanism there's all sorts of urbanism so um you know that's that part has never really been the part of contention what 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 is the point of contention is what happens in these like often 
not always, but often like urban core communities that are communities of color traditionally, right? That are like, where the, what do you do with the victims of redlining, right? Because they, they, every MB basically says, well, redlining was really bad. And so we have to end exclusionary zoning. But then the other side of that, that they're, that they're focused on is, uh, you know, development in really sensitive communities, right? And, you know, where, and, and they kind of think that because, because, you know, there was redlining, there was white flight, right? So there's that segregation. There was white people leaving the cities for the suburbs. Um, and, you know, now there's, now there's wealthier, whiter folks, not always white, but, you know, <laughs> there's wealthier people moving back into the cities. And that's kind of the dynamic we're in is the cities are competing for, you know, higher, higher income people. It's all about the tax base, you know, giving tax breaks to Amazon or whatever, you know, that they're, that they're doing. And because people are coming back into the cities, right, all of these professionals, and that's kind of, I would say not, it's not all of them, but I would say that EMB's base is a lot of these like urban professionals who are feeling um, the squeeze of the, of housing prices on them. So they're kind of thinking about it from the lens of their needs, which is fair, but you know, the, the, where the conflict starts to happen is what, what, what happens in, in working class communities. Right. And that's, that's where the, that's where the, like the tension, I mean, I'm using tension as a very diplomatic word to call what, what happened on Twitter, for example, but, um, but that's where the tension really arises. And for, for us, for tenant organizers, our question is we're trying to build power, right? You know, these are, EMBs will acknowledge that, you know, the, the victims of redlining have been through a tremendous amount, but the part where we are at cross purposes, um, to say the least, is that like for tenant organizers, like we want those people to be powerful, right? We want those people, that, we know those people need new housing, but they need new housing for them. And we, we want to actually, maybe for the first time ever in this country, although there's a rich history of tenant organizing, but it's like, we want to like, we want to continue to build power for them. And, and that's actually going to change the landscape of our cities in a lot of different profound ways, right? But we want a city for the working class. And that's why we organize tenants. And, and I think, you know, the, the tension also pops up when you see organized tenants in some of these communities, like the mission in San Francisco, or like, you know, in LA and Boyle Heights and places like places like that, those kind of neighborhoods, when you do see, um, you know, not just lefties, but, you know, organized tenants, more importantly, regardless of their politics, when you see them actually stand up and say, hey, this, this development, this stuff isn't working for us. That's when, that's when the Yimbis, um kind of, you know, can't really get the message on that. I mean, there was recently, so tenants in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, recently won this huge victory of rent stabilization for like citywide, including new construction. And then, you know, there's pretty immediately, um, you know, the pushback from a lot of these free market types. And, you know, I mean, it, it, in some cases you see like people with real, you know, funding behind them from think tanks where, you know, the list is like a long, <laughs> it's a long list of billionaire sponsored uh, organizations and, you know, like Reason Magazine. And, you know, there's like this, there's sort of this uh, idea and the zeitgeist that a lot of really powerful people have tried to put there that, you know, rent control is something that um, pre prevents people from having housing somehow, you know, and- yeah. Like, whereas, like, you know, for somebody who is a working class person, it's just not going to be 
tenable to have your rent go up 500 bucks a month. I mean, that's, that can make you homeless, you know? So, uh, I guess, you know, in what way are you like working as like a, a housing organizer or the people that, you know, like trying to, you know, combat these real, like, this is econ 101 kind of narratives to things that like may, may not be market-based solutions at all. Yeah, it's it's really it's really good that you brought that up. It's also very funny because my reply, I mean, I have an economics degree, so my reply is always like, yeah, it's Econ 101, but you did you you forgot to read Econ 201 or even Econ 102, and that's why you're spouting this nonsense. Um, but yeah, I, I think the thing is, is the thing to hold on to too is rent control. Rent control is a really popular policy. Like even if you just poll the words rent control in California, for example, like somebody did it. And I, a couple of years ago, I think Berkeley maybe. And uh, it was at 60% popularity. It's broadly popular. They can only use these sort of tactics to prevent popular policies because that's kind of all they've got. But of course they have the resources of, you know, think tanks, deep pockets, the real estate industry, um, you know, funding all of this nonsense. But uh, what was really instructive about I think the, 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 the discourse around the St. Paul rent control was, I mean, I wasn't, I guess I should have expected that level of sort of freak out, but even from people who don't even live there. But I think like, I don't know if people don't, some of these people know what they're doing. Right. And then some of the people online don't know what they're doing. They're just, they're not being funded by a think tank. They're just kind of going with it. Right. They're being funded by they're going with the discourse, but my big reply guy. Yeah, my yeah. big reply guy. And it's funny to me. I mean, it's 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 also kind of a bummer, but it's funny to me because every time, so every time there's new rent control and passed in a city in California, like we go through, I mean, I've been through this, like this is my job. I've been through this so many times in the last few years, and tenants together has been through it even longer than I was there, right? Um, and every time it, there's a new rent control law passed, it immediately, even if it passes, which is not a guarantee, right? People have gone to the ballot and really gotten swamped by real estate money, and it's really sad. But um, but we've also beaten them, as, uh, which is great. Um, but it was it was there's always this implementation phase, and I don't want to get too technical. But what I mean is that like you're fighting you're fighting at the ballot, or you're fighting at the city council, you're fighting all these disingenuous landlord lobbyists, it's real estate lobbyists, et cetera, coming at you with all their money and all of these econ 101, you know, uh, talking points that they have. But even if you win it, um, then they still try to water it down. And, and I have friends in the Twin Cities who are housing activists, and they were, you know, going to all of these implementation um, meetings for St. Paul, right, where the city's like, how are we going to actually do this? Um, and there were so many, obviously, landlords, et cetera, like just fighting like hell to water it down, right? And I kind of had to had that thought when I see all this online discourse about St. Paul from all these people, whether they're funded, I mean, if they're, I almost respect it more if you're getting paid to do this, because at least I know that you are, but the ones yeah, who are doing then it, you're for, an, then you're an employee. You're not just a bootlegger. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But the ones who are doing it for free, I'm just like, I'm in awe because I was like, you're, you're doing the real estate industry. You're doing the landlord's work for you for the volunteer real estate lobbyist. You're a volunteer. Be you're being post. a volunteer real estate lobbyist. And like, you don't even know it because you know, you're kind of just saying it's, and it's very much it's funny because like, you know, the, the EMB critique of NIMBYs, which is correct, is that a lot of them say, well, I want, you know, I want more housing, just not like this. 
But that's exactly what they're doing with tenant protection is a rent control. They're with rent control. They're basically saying it's like, oh, like, you know, some of the, the, the savvier ones, they're, they're, they've, they've taken the, the comms tack because I'm also a comms person and a legislative person. They've taken the comms tack of like, oh, well, we don't hate rent control. Just not like this, like just not here. And there's always, there's always an excuse. Um, and so, you know, I mean, they're, 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 it's a complicated relationship between that quote unquote movement and rent control because some people do support it, some people don't. But if your tent is just basically pol- politically polarized around, not politically polarized, it's you have a tent that's just anybody who wants to build more housing of any kind is supposedly a YMV, then like, I mean, you're going to have people who are like really, really rabidly anti-tenant in your tent, in your political tent. And like, whether you say you support it in theory, like that doesn't change that. And it also doesn't change. Like, I mean, I, I suspect most of these people don't actually understand how rent control laws are, the, what the political fight around rent control laws is, and maybe don't understand that they're being volunteer lobbyists, but they are. Yeah. I mean, I think in cities, like yeah, probably most cities at this point, you know, uh, but certainly very expensive cities like San Francisco and New York, like, the land value is so high that, you know, like, and just like the cost to build, it's not really going to be possible to have like, you know, housing that people can, like a regular working class person can afford to to live in that is, you know, not, that, that is like purely provided by the market and you know no laws no public housing i know you've spoken uh about like the need for public housing and why you know in the the quest to to get more housing supply it actually has to have you know uh a some some subsidized housing and some you know government funded housing um talk a little bit about that if you can yeah, I mean, I think um, obviously everybody talks about Vienna a lot, like Red Vienna. But um, so for people who may not be familiar, will you just d- describe mm-hmm. a little bit what that is? Mm-hmm. So when we, I'll, 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 I'll back it up one more too and say like when we talk about social housing, when you're going to hear that word a lot because there's a lot of initiatives for social housing across the country that are kicking off, um, some better than others. But, um, you know, it really is kind of an umbrella term for, you know, permanently decommodified housing with, uh, you know, where tenants have self-determination that's not disinvested, et cetera, but also includes existing public housing. It includes new public housing. It can include community land trusts, et cetera. It's kind of a broad sort of term. So when we talk about social housing, that's kind of what we're we're pushing for that. It's a lot of different strategies and can mean a lot of different things. Um, And so I know that that term can be kind of confusing. But one thing people, one model that people talk a lot about is, is Vienna. Um, and, um, and I'll get to the history real quick in a, in a second. I'll try to be as fast as I can. But the, you'll hear people talking about Vienna a lot, and that's great. But some people, when they talk about Vienna, are just thinking about, like, a, a how do you pay financing structure, which is to say, like, rich people, poor people, um, they all kind of, they do live together um, in social housing in Vienna. Um, in pub- and it's public, it's public housing. Uh, and, and, you know, the richer people's rents directly subsidize poorer people's rents, which is a would be a way, way better system than the insane investor tax credit system we have now that is we used to build subsidized housing. Um, so it, that part is good. But the thing is that 
there was a political context that like all of that social and public housing in Vienna was won by a workers movement. Right. And so it was one in like if they call it Red Vienna because it was socialists and communists, et cetera, who kind of took over in the period between World War One and World War Two. And some of them got taken out by the Nazis. Actually, a lot of housing activists did um, in Vienna. But um, but people talk about like, you know, this model where it's like, OK, we can have maybe maybe it'll be easier to pay for it if we have richer people subsidizing poor people. But that still doesn't change a lot of the factors that and, and that'll help. But that can't be the whole thing. And, and so I think a lot of people have started kind of latching onto this model as a maybe a new way to do housing in uh, in America. And I think it's great, but also and amazing. But also I'm kind of always like, don't forget the history here. Like, don't forget that you need you can't do it. You can't build it without the movement. You need to build the movement of tenants and workers because um, that's actually what gets this built. And that also is like how we confront the state, which we know can pay for things. It's like, we live in a very rich and just like disgustingly unequal society, but we know the money's there if we fight for it. Right. You know, so it's like that sort of, but with that goes back to what you were saying to, to tie it all back um, to what you were saying about, you know, land and construction being expensive, which is also something that, you know, UMBs acknowledge, everybody acknowledges it's really, really expensive, um, but has different thoughts about how to, what to do with that. I mean, for, for us, for tenant, for the tenant movement, it's very much, it's like, yes, it is really expensive, but also, especially in California, which is like the fifth biggest economy in the world. Like we just had a huge budget surplus um, and we don't tax property fairly. Um, it's like, no, no, we have to have the confrontation that we can pay for it. You know, we're paying for cops, but we're not paying for housing. We're giving, you know, second mansion, second homeowners like tax breaks giving tenants nothing like we can we have to have that political confrontation that we can actually that we can pay for this um yeah and i guess that's true for a lot of other things that aren't just housing obviously i mean people i wasn't as involved with i'm not as involved with medicare for all organizing like some of my friends are and my comrades are but you know it's just that stupid how will you pay for it question is just you just have to dismiss it out of hand it's completely disingenuous in that sense yeah i mean it's so frustrating because it's like you know, here in New York, I think we have the biggest public housing system in the entire country, NYCHA, and, you know, it's been uh, underfunded for years. I mean, like, and, you know, people have been living with, you know, black molds, as we were talking about, no heating in the winter, which is fucking cold. Like yeah. it, it's really cold here in the winter and, you know, there's like, there's just this pattern of like governments, not just in the United States, but also other countries like disinvesting in their public housing and then using it as like an excuse to privatize. And, you know, there has been some push to privatize NYCHA and and also this compromise option which is really complicated it's like I'm it's like <laughs> so I've been I've been trying to keep track of it because I have like friends who are on different sides of the yeah. I mean, not like or different like different nuanced like positions of the you know whatever this yeah. compromise is going to be and I was like I'm like trying to be super delicate and just be like understanding and like listen to it because like you know I mean I'm not like I'm not exactly an amateur at these kind of things but it's so complicated like what's it's going on really with NYCHA yeah Even I was though- talking to uh CEO Weaver about it who I know worked on it and it's just like 
it took me like a, she's going to come on the show soon, but it to explain it, but it, you know, it took like, like 20 minutes just to go through just the facts of what's happening. But, yeah. you know, kind of stepping back for a second, you know, there's like in the, how we pay for it conversation, it's like governments don't invest in public housing and then mm -hmm. public housing becomes, you know, broken down and in you know the buildings are in a state of disrepair and then that's like used as an excuse uh like hey look that doesn't work almost like with schools like you know mm -hmm. stop funding schools and then you know schools don't have the resources that they need and then it's like oh i guess we're gonna need charter schools and there's this, it sounds it seems like there's this whole sort of push to create a situation where it seems like privatization is the only option you yeah. know yeah and it's a, it's like I always compare I mean it's the whole like you know dismantling of the welfare state like neoliberalism it's it's their classic move where it's like they like take a they take a crowbar to your knees and then they ask you why you're walking funny you know and and that's like that's really how I think about it especially I mean and that's the thing too is like you know, when you see organized NYCHA tenants or other public housing tenants, um, uh, you know, I'm thinking about Defend Glendale actually in Minneapolis too is an example of that where it's like, yeah, there's problems with these. And I've organized with tenants in San Francisco who are, who have been in that position, right? Like public housing tenants who are basically saying, you know, facing demolition, privatization, et cetera. Um, and, you know, even when they have problems in their homes, like real problems that need to be addressed, right? Like just because it's not owned by a private landlord doesn't change that these tenants need power and the right to dignified housing like tenant organized organized in public housing too or nonprofit housing but you know there's this idea it's like you see a lot of people and i've seen that in my own work like organizing tenants outside of work in san francisco um is that you know people are still willing to fight for their homes even when they have all those problems right yeah. they're willing to fight against privatization like their home is still you know means a tremendous amount to them and like, so when you think about like public housing kind of organizing specifically, it's like extra powerful because, you know, they, they are going and the NYCHA tenants, it's the same. They are, they have a lot of serious problems with their housing, but that doesn't mean that they want to lose their housing. And that doesn't mean these people, you know, coming in and telling them that they'll, they, that, that, oh, it'll be better. It'll be better. Like they know better. They know that they know the history. They know what happens, right. People get displaced, all of that, all of that stuff. Like they want to hold on to their communities. So um, I just wanted to observe that too, because that's, that's not obviously not every single person who lives in public housing, who's had to deal with public housing issues is going to feel that way. But I know that a lot of people do, especially organized. Yeah. So looking at the tenants movement more broadly, you know, what are like some of the main, you know, what are, what are the main issues right now? Obviously eviction is, you know, eviction protections are big, mm -hmm. but you know, what are the kind of like broad categories of things that people are working on right now? Yeah, I think, um, I think we've all been struggling with uh, one thing that I've been struggling with for the last two years during COVID, obviously that these, it, none of these eviction quote unquote moratoriums ever really were moratoriums. And so it's funny, like anytime I have to talk to a reporter, I'm always like, Oh, I have to, do my shtick which they're all really tired of now where I'm just like start off with don't call it a moratorium because it wasn't um none of this was a real moratorium um and and people get confused by that but what I mean by that is like there were always loopholes there were always ways to work around it 
uh, for landlords, you know, there were always things they could do. Like people were still, it's not like nobody was being displaced. A lot of people who couldn't pay rent during COVID were being displaced. But then on top of that, you had these rent relief programs where both like there was a lot of money from the federal government. It still wasn't enough money, but tenants had to jump through so many, so many hoops to get this rent relief money. But also the, the, the worst thing about this is a, a lot of it, it just ended up being a landlord subsidization program because there were no penalties. There was no enforcement. There was no, sometimes not even any legal protections. Like there are landlords right now, like we're in, we're, we're in court. Like all, a lot of our, a lot of our allies are in court right now. A lot of our tenants are in court right now with landlords who they, they did the tenant did everything right. Right. They lost their income. That wasn't their fault. Um, they applied for the rent relief money. They got the, they somehow managed to, so a lot of people got their applications wrongfully rejected and, or just couldn't fill them out because they had barriers to access. I mean, there's so much going on there. We actually wrote a whole report about it. Um, but even then, like they, the ones who did make it through and they did get the money, like a lot of times their landlords are trying to evict them anyway. And so, and I don't think that's, that's not just true in California. That's true everywhere. Like I was talking to a friend of mine, who's like a, a planner, a, like a planning academic and a scholar and everything. And he was, we were talking about this issue because he's been meaning to write something on it, but it was just like, I don't know. We just gave landlords their money back scot-free as a country. And with that, plus like, you know, obviously inflation and a lot of people just, you know, and then also this sort of bipartisan decision that we've made as as a country to to or not we you and I didn't make it but this idea that it's like oh you know COVID's over slash it's not but you're and you're all going to get it and just deal with it that like you know we're we're going back to normal we're going back to normal um that whole that we're quote unquote we're going back to normal drive is leaving a lot of people behind who haven't gotten their jobs back who are still losing income um and so once again that's like a huge thing to talk about I'm rambling a little bit but that's a really pressing issue right now still is like we're not out of COVID a lot of people still can't pay rent they could barely pay the rent and even people who got rent relief money are getting evicted so I mean what was the what was the point of all this yeah it's uh, I mean it is everything certainly is a huge uh, bummer right now and there's there's no way around that uh you know they just banned Jewel which is outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> we already did that in SF basically. So it's, yeah. it's, it's already, it was already for us. Um, thankfully I have a different kind of vape. Um, but, but besides, you know, like organizing, like I know in New York, there's this good cause eviction bill that uh, tenant organizers are organizing around, you know, what are like some of the other issues that socialists, can be working on at this time? Um, so many. And then again, like, I don't want to be a total downer because there's been some really awesome stuff that's happened during the pandemic too. It's just in the worst of circumstances. So like, you know, we're, we're passing, you know, we've passed anti-harassment protections. There's obviously, there's a, there's a movement for right to counsel, which would be like getting an eviction lawyer guaranteed. Um, and that's actually something that DSA, which I used to, I used to be co-chair of San Francisco DSA when that was happening. And like, we passed that at the ballot. So San Francisco is the like only city I, or not, no, no, maybe not, not anymore. We were the first one to have universal right to counsel. Um, there's one thing that's really important to us at Tenants Together is right to organize. Um, because actually we think that like, we, we do think about this in the context of like workers and the labor movement you know, the workers are tenants and tenants are workers um, kind of framing where it's like, we actually don't have legal protections in this country to organize as tenants. So we don't. 
And San Francisco just passed a right to organize ordinance, which I thought was really, really cool. But some people are also passing that through like anti-harassment. So there's all these different things. There's like rent control and, you know, good cause or just, we call it just cause here and good cause in New York, which I think is really funny, but it's the same thing. Um, you know, there's rent control, there's good, there's good slash just cause there's right to, there's right to counsel and there's right to organize. Um, and those are a lot of, uh, those, I mean, there's way more than that, right. There's anti-harassment things. There's repealing rent control, statewide rent control bans. There's so much that people can be working on just from the tenant side. I'm not even getting into like the stuff that we've been doing, you know, to, for all the social housing bills that are out there in different cities and states. I'm not even getting into, you know, the, um, you know, that we're passing progressive taxes, which LA is about to go to the ballot with one that's going to deliver a lot of housing and like legal aid services and all sorts of wonderful things for people by taxing real estate, high level real estate purchases. Like, and, and we did that in SF with like $10 million properties. Actually, we won that. Although the mayor is trying to spend that money on the cops, which is a different other story that I'll get into some other time. But I mean, there's like, there's so many things that people could be, can be working on right now, but really, I mean, it, that sounds overwhelming, but it's really just like, it's like organized with tenants in your community. I mean, just start there. Like, and but, uh, what, so another thing that you mentioned a few minutes ago that I wanted, I am actually just learning about myself, um, community land trusts, mm -hmm. what are they, where are they happening? How could someone attempt one? You know, mm -hmm. Go into that a little bit. Yeah, it's like any kind of um, so actually fun fact, and I'm probably gonna I'm gonna do some really fun stuff with our financials after this podcast recording. That's how I that's how I roll on a Sunday, you know. <laughs> but um so I, I I'm in a totally voluntary position, but I'll disclose like I'm currently vice president of the board of the San Francisco Community Land Trust, which was established, I think, um, 20 years ago something like that actually my boss was a, a tenants together was a founding member of it which i think is kind of a cute bit of continuity between us um but or someone else oh my sorry my, my 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 boss our executive director is actually she was a founding member so i'm uh, sorry that's actually, why i'm trying to remember like when she was in her 20s i think so i'm trying to remember like i was like when was it founded uh but i was i was quite young at that point i was not living here i was a teenager in pennsylvania but um but that's a, there's the, there's things in the Bay area, like the San Francisco community land trust and the East Bay permanent real estate cooperative that are kind of like bigger, but then also it's like, uh, you can also, um, there's things like that are out there now, like DC has something called a tenant opportunity to purchase. And that's something that's becoming a policy. That's pretty popular where like tenants have the right to, it's like called the right of first refusal, but it's like the right to buy your building or community organization has the right to buy a building that's community. And we have that here in SF um, where like a nonprofit can like, yeah, basically take a building off the speculative market. Um, so there's all these different strategies. Um, there's stuff called like a limited equity housing cooperative. I know that's like a really mouthy like, term, but uh, we actually just did that. Um, the SF land trust did that where we we bought we've just bought a building full of like really vulnerable tenants that we used to you know that were actually that I used to organize with through DSA like five years ago when they were first getting harassed by this corporate landlord and uh you know turning it trying to help support the tenants turning it into an limited equity housing cooperative which I know is like turning into a co-op basically where it's going to be permanently affordable um for them and they get a teeny bit of return right like 
So there's the, the whole thing about communal interests is it's, there's so many different little like strategies that people have. It could be like a one building co-op, right? It could be, or it could be like a citywide nonprofit organization, or it could be like, a, yeah, like a, um, you know, a democratically run cooperative, like the East Bay cooperative where they're like, well, everybody, everybody who gives them money, like puts in, gets a, gets a voting, gets a vote. Right. So they put in like money for a share and they get a vote. It can be organized in a lot of different ways. And that's not me like explaining it super well, but ultimately like the goal is to basically permanently, permanently decommodify existing housing or existing land and take it yeah. off the market forever and then figure out what the, and then what, whatever the structure of that looks like, um, that, that, that's where there's a lot of like diversity, but it's definitely growing, but it's still kind of small. And, and the biggest challenge is always going to be, you know, you have to have the money, like, <laughs> and a lot of people just don't. Um, so yeah, you know, yeah. Like even if, you know, you are, <laughs> if you have the options to buy it, it doesn't mean that you have the money to buy. That's a totally separate issue. Exactly. Exactly. But it's like, there's a lot of exciting things for people who do have the option to buy or like organizations that want to support them in buying that, but it's still, um, it's still really hard because you're still up against, you're still, you, you still have to outbid real estate capital and that's pretty tough. So, yeah, it's, I mean, so related, but, you know, slightly different tangent, you know, I've been looking at what's happening in San Francisco recently, both because I used to live there and just feel emotionally invested in the city, but also because, you know, I think San Francisco is kind of like, you know, it's just like a little bit further along in, into capitalist hell than many areas of the rest of the country. Like sometimes because it's small, sometimes because there's just so much money there. Um, but, you know, it, it seems like there's kind of this coalition of dark money and these various organizations that are working together and I, to me like this this that nelly bowles piece in the atlantic was kind of oh, like God. the perfect encapsulation of just all the terrible shit that they're trying to do um so you know increasing the police force uh cracking down on homelessness and i say that because it doesn't seem to be about finding people homes it seems to be about taking people's tents away and throwing them in jail and you know, um, you know, what else, like uh, ending bail reform, um, resegregating one of the schools. Um, mm -hmm. How is this all working together? And how is real estate in particular involved in this weird right-wing push for the city? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, a, it's important to like, I, I used to not think about it this way and now I kind of do where it's like, um, the, the real estate industry actually has always been there. And I didn't realize this until I like actually started reading like San Francisco labor history and, and things like that. Right. Or uh, actually like, like took a California labor history class and cause we have free community college, which is something the real estate industry didn't want, but we won that. Um, but, you know, it was when I started thinking about it that it's like, yeah, San Francisco has always been kind of, it's it's both, like, it both has this inspiring history of, like, tenant radicalism, of queer radicalism, and, like, really important social movements that were, that were born here. 
But if that's always coexisted with like, you know, the fact that it's like, it was a gold rush boom town. I mean, like I'm in a rent controlled apartment now, but like when I, it was wild to see pictures of my neighborhood, which is one of the oldest neighborhoods in the city, like that it was just sand dunes 150 years ago, but it was. And so it, 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 there's always been a lot, a lot of capitalism here. Um, and like, even like was a huge center for the shipbuilding industry and thus like, you know, the, the war machine, um, the sort of like turn of the century, like imperialist war machine. Like I'm talking about like the U S the U S and like San Francisco real estate had a hand in the U S like colonizing the Philippines. Like that's really literally true. Um, because we had stripped the Sierra Nevadas, we'd stripped Tahoe we, of all the, all the trees and all, we needed more, we needed more trees to build ships. That's why we did that. Uh, that's why the United States did that. So there is, it's really fascinating the more I dig into it to kind of just like, and I kind of try to keep that in mind where it's like, there's always been that like hyper-capitalist angle here a little bit. And like, you know, it's always been the realtors, the chamber of commerce, like those are the two biggest, most powerful uh, lobbies that are in opposition to the left, but they've been there a long time. Um, there's always been sort of this, like a little bit of element of this kind of media, you know, propaganda right-wing media propaganda coming from outlets like the san francisco chronicle you know you see what they're saying about chase Boudin, but then like during the then i like remember that during the 1934 uh 34 36 uh general strike which was like the the most successful general strike in u.s history was here in sf right it was like five days and that their chronicles headline back then was like almost 100 years ago was san francisco trains its guns on communism that was their like that was what they said about the workers so that's all to say that like, yeah, definitely things have taken a real turn during COVID. Um, and I think it is kind of like, I forget if it's Naomi Klein or whoever who came up with the, the was a disaster capitalism, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think classic book. doctrine. Yeah, 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 exactly. Most depressing, so, single most depressing book I've ever read in my life, but incredibly it's, good. But so good. Yeah, yeah. And and so that's kind of, I think they just like smelled blood in the water and saw an opportunity uh, the same. And, and of course, like it's been with, I mean, Silicon Valley is probably the, I mean, maybe one of the greatest concentrations of wealth and capital in human history. So it's not like Silicon Valley didn't like turbocharge this dynamic, right? They did. They absolutely are. And they have, and they're going to continue to do that. Although, I mean, I, I do want to make the distinction that when people talk about tech, there's tech capitalists and there's tech workers. And there are a lot of tech workers who don't, I, I came to SF as a tech worker. Like there's a lot of tech workers who don't agree with this stuff. And there's a lot of tech workers who are fighting back against their bosses. So I do want to make their distinction. Yeah, I think that's really, that's, I, I think that's a really important point to remember because, you know, I've seen like recently, like we're just talking about the, the Yemi movement. It is a lot of tech people and it is a lot of, you know, like, in what is in in marxist terminology like labor aristocracy or mm -hmm. like petty mm -hmm. bourgeois in some cases like these like startup founders or whatever but uh there's a lot of tech workers that are just workers and you know there's even been some successful union movements or at least one and i don't know how many but you know it's like yeah it's a I, I think it's important to remember that not everyone in the tech industry is a class enemy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a lot of, I think, I think you're right about the, and I say this as somebody who was like, I, I grew up pretty financially insecure and not, not rich at all. My, my parents are teachers, you know, um, and 
then somehow uh, scholarship myself into the labor aristocracy. And now as a tenant organizer, completely tossed myself right back out of it. And I'm not going back, not interested. But yeah, um, mobile millennials for justice. Hell yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Um, but but yeah, I, I, I do think that it, I think they want they actually want to like a lot of these like weirdo like like super and there, there is a there are a lot of like tech CEO guys um, who are Yimbies and they actually funded the state California Yimby organization. They seed funded it. Right. Like the Stripe billionaire gave them a ton of money. He's not giving money to tenant organizations. That's for sure. Right. Um, and we could, we could stretch that dollar a lot better, I think, but, um, yeah. And, and, and why, so why is that? Like, is it because, I mean, you know, I know some of these billionaire guys are also real estate investors, mm-hmm. but I mean, what's the other motivation here for these extremely, uh, extremely fancy tech people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, the tech aristocracy. It's in their it's in their interest for more housing to be built for their workers. But they're yeah. but they're only thinking when they're thinking about their workers, they're talking about their white collar workers. And they're not talking about like like people who are driver. the people, yeah. yeah, the the Uber driver or like the person like, you know, it's like the janitor or like, you know, the lunch lady who's like taking care of all these catered lunches or whatever, they're tech workers too. And they're commuting like four hours, you know, from you know the central Valley to just to go to work here in the Bay area and then have to go back. Right. And, and at the end of every day, and like I, those tech CEOs, they do think they're basically, it's like, it's in my interest to build more housing for my top tier employees. Cause I know that the market will do that. Uh, there, I don't think they give a rat's ass about their bottom tier employees. <laughs> Let's no, I don't way. think so either. And it also just strikes me as kind of just good old fashioned class solidarity of mm-hmm. like, you know, promoting this idea of, you know, the just like libertarian economic philosophy as sort of in reaction to, um, you know, the, the, the leftist upsurge that we've seen. um, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And and there's, and there's a, there's a British, I think she's British. Um, or they, I'm so sorry, I, but there's a British historian named uh, Mar Hicks who's at HIST of tech on Twitter, history of tech. And it was really fascinating. One thing that I didn't even know was that actually the tech industry, like kind of in the pre, like, you know, before all these Silicon Valley titans started cropping up, like Larry Ellison and Steve Jobs, like these sort of like, well, I wouldn't call them alpha males, but, you know, you know, these, these men of industry, right? Before they started popping up, like even like earlier than that, like the 60s and 70s, a lot of tech workers, like, and I mean like engineers, et cetera. Like, so part of this, like sort of like, you know, you have like some kind of graduate degree or something like that. Um, a lot of them were women, right? And a lot of them, and it was, it was not, they were not all mostly like white men. Obviously there's, I'm Indian. So there's obviously some like, you know, there's like, there's Asian American immigrants, et cetera, who are also like kind of in this kind of tier or this labor aristocracy, right? But the thing was that there was, a, it was a conscious decision. I wish I remembered exactly how she'd explained it. Cause this was years ago. I saw this thread, but um, it was a conscious decision by management to kind of re- change the structure of that top, that labor aristocracy, that top tier of the workforce and make it skewed towards mostly white guys. A lot of whom like did end up are kind of like the people on Twitter who are yelling at you. Um, <laughs> that 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 it was that it would be better for them to be in these sort of positions because uh they would have 
they would see themselves inherently as having more solidarity with the boss, the capitalists than their, than their fellow workers, because they're kind of like closer to being aspiring capitalists themselves. And I had no idea that that was like part of the history of Silicon Valley until like I read about it. Like I really had no clue. And this was like after I'd stopped working in it for a while. So it was like, it was really wild to see, but I think that's a huge dynamic. And I also think that's a huge dynamic between, you know, the certain, I'll, I'll be diplomatic, but the, the certain type of guy who's been in your replies a lot lately, Kate. <laughs> well, if I get this podcast, it is called Reply Guys. So it is called <laughs> so there we go. It's, it's about socialism, feminism, and the worst men on the internet. Those yeah, the yeah. Podcast. Yeah, uh, I, I, I do. I mean, I do. I have to say, I do. Like, I really empathize with you because, like, I've been. I mean, I've been like getting this for years. Not maybe not at the same. I'm, I'm not as famous as you are, so maybe I'm not getting at the same level. Although in other ways, I'm getting it a lot worse because I work in oh, housing. Oh yeah, but, in person too. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been shouted over by these people, like in person. Um, but, but I think it's a. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like there's a, there is a there is a reply guy mentality to kind of like to explore there. There is like a bit of like, mostly I'm not saying entirely, but there is like, there's a, there's an element of like white male toxicity that I've definitely experienced, especially like I'm not a white woman, I'm a woman of color. Like, um, you know, and there's like, I, I think I've talked to people who are like, I really respect, I mean, like I'm kind of, I'm kind of honored that getting yelled at on Twitter has somehow like put me in this class where there's people who are like, you know, there's like academics whose books I was like, reading in awe reverent awe about housing like lefties um um you, like you know when I first got started as a socialist organizer who are now like kind of being like I was like yeah it's like they really like there's like they, like I was like how do you like deal with this like how do you deal with these people yelling at you all the time <laughs> so I, I yeah welcome welcome to the club yeah I've been thinking a lot though and I think part of the reason that this shit upset me so much is because you know, just everything that's going on right now in the country, like there is this like right wing, in many cases, actually fascist movement, in my opinion, that is arising. Like, you know, the fucking January 6th people, QAnon, these weirdo Christo fascist assholes that are trying mm-hmm. to like make people with ectopic pregnancies that have to die. I mean, there's just so much, right? Like n- nobody... Nobody who's listening to this podcast is, is unfamiliar with the various tactics mm-hmm. that the right is using to uh, make life a living hell for women, queer people, people of color, obviously can be the same people in many instances. But, you know, it's like I've been thinking a lot about like the the Marxist theory of fascism, which I'm going to like butcher explaining because I'm not like great at this yet. But basically, you know, that like fascism arises, you know, when capitalism becomes unstable due to like reaching Mm -hmm. like a a certain height of inequality and like to suppress um, like a a left solution, you know, which is like redistribution, um, you know, worker power uh, from a thing, you know, like the ruling class will, the petty bourgeois will go fast and the ruling class will allow it because it's a useful mm-hmm. instrument for uh, suppressing workers. And, you know, I've been thinking about like the different ways it's happening, obviously, like, you know, this crackdown on our, our reproductive rights and this horrible scapegoating of trans people, which is just absolutely disgusting. And, 
you know, just kind of seeing it sort of emerge in, in a different way in the Bay Area where like it's it's a lot of the same forces if you look at like you know what happened with the Chesa recall and all the mm-hmm. you know calls for additional policing and it's got this like kind of you know social justice language on top of it sometimes because yep. it's the Bay Area and I don't know to me it just feels very much it feels very much connected like what's what's happening like in on on the west coast and you know what's happening like in washington dc this you know sort of like (laughs) you got your your peter teals and your Mm -hmm. cody barrett's and they are i think you know very much part of the same project yeah what are your thoughts on that I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a San, Fr- San Francisco is really like, and even like the, even the, there's a thread between like San Francisco, polit- like and Bay Area politicians and your reply guys, et cetera. I mean, it's just like all of the contradictions and the failures of liberalism in this moment. And yeah, I mean, it's I honestly- very hard to, like, it's very hard sometimes to talk about, like, it's, you could talk about liberalism as a thing and you could talk about, uh, this emergent fascism is a thing but there there starts to be overlap you know? yeah <laughs> like, oh, totally it, totally and that's the thing it's like there's a there's a weird I hate using the term gaslighting because I think it should be used strictly for you know like intimate partner abuse but at the same I wish there were another word for like a political what political gaslighting is because like this is I mean San Francisco is the like world sometimes feels like the maybe it's because I live here but it feels like the global capital of political gaslighting because it is all there's everything everything is couched in social justice language right and that was one of the attacks against Chesa Boudin which like was really painful to not just me as like I'm you know as a South Asian American but a lot of my East Asian American like friends and comrades etc it was so painful to watch this sort of like this horribly reactionary project be framed as like in defense of Asian people but like yeah. that's like peak San Francisco it really it is was the same thing same thing with with Lowell you know which mm-hmm. like yeah. I know you, you probably know way more about it than than I do but I talked to some you know t- teachers in, in the district and and also parents and read about it a lot online and you know like basically the issue with Lowell is that it is a public school and you know, like the percentage of black and brown people that were, they had like an admissions criteria that like obviously had uh, a degree of racial bias because, you know, whatever they were calling it, like merit-based or something, which is not even language that I want to engage in because it's like, (laughs) yeah, that's, I mean, I was talking to like my friend who's been teaching in the San Francisco school district and he's like, yeah, I've met like, black and brown kids with incredible merit who are working super hard and they still don't get into school and like they yeah. deserve to be there right so you know there was this push to like i mean they had to get rid of the um quote unquote merit-based admissions and then you know all of a sudden the school demographics look like the demographics of san francisco and then there was this reactionary backlash and you know, they were allowed to reinstitute this test, um, you yeah. know, the, and, it, it's and which is a, it's illegal. Yeah, it's illegal. yeah. And, you know, to me, it's like, okay, you know, this is, <laughs> one would think that like a 
the libs have all agreed for a while now that school segregation is bad, but this project was couched in this, you know, social justice language of, you know, to get rid of this test is uh, oppressive to Asian American people. And man, it's just, it's, it, it gets so confusing to talk about because it's hard <laughs> to stay grounded and like, no, segregation is bad. Like we, that's, we, we decided already, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, I mean, and that's one of the things, reasons I'm also grateful to be a Marxist is you can also, you very, can very much understand this sort of fluidity of whiteness and white supremacy. You don't have to be white to accidentally or intentionally like, <laughs> like facilitate or further white supremacy. And, um, and that's definitely, I think of that's something I think about that a lot, especially like, is like my, my, my dad was a, is a teacher and he used to, you know, um, teach in where I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, predominantly like very deep underfunded, um, majority black schools. And he also taught, um, when I was in college, he taught public school in the Navajo nation, right. He lived in the four corners. My mom taught there too. So um, I do think about that a lot as like the, the daughter of teacher, public school teachers, um, just, and, and also as like one of these sort of Asian American meritocracy people, right? Like I did, I went to a fancy Ivy League school on full scholarship and all of that stuff. But like, I was talking to my father about, <laughs> I'm not trying to brag. I'm bringing no, this up. I know, because, I'm, I'm bringing this up because my reply guys have used it to delegitimize my existence for years. And I'm I mean, hoping. I do mean that I'm not going to just say my reply guys. I'm saying the EMBs explicitly have used this to delegitimize my existence for years, but fuck them. Yes. I'm a left NIMBY now. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. I'm no, me too. No, 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 no. Yeah. Proud left NIMBY, just kidding. Uh, but, but, but no, but it was like, I was talking to my father about it and he was like, he was really flabbergasted by it too, because it was like, and, and in the middle of all this real pain, like I am working, I do work with like, I'm working with Asian American tenants who are getting harassed in the street, like who can't pay rent, who have like maxed out their credit cards or whatever, who are feeling really like hurt and discriminated against and being attacked in the streets of San Francisco. That's real pain. Right. But then you also see this, like this Lowell thing. And it's just like the dis, I mean, it's so that's also that, that, ha that experience also makes it really extra upsetting for me. And like, I was in a, I did enter a public school lottery myself when I was uh, like a kid. So, you know, I've been in a lottery too. Um, and so, and the other piece that like, it was funny because there were some very like the same, some of the same people in San Francisco who are saying like, we need to build more market rate housing because of redlining and segregation. They went out and said, hey, no, we need to keep this merit-based system. I mean, it was just such a like, some, some of a lot of them were prominent Yumbies. And like, it was just stunning to see like that, just that total hypocrisy where it's like, oh, okay. So you want to build condos in the mission but when it comes to a lottery in your kid's school that's where you draw the line right and, and it's a real nimby move isn't it that's like, real right? it is it is nimbies and we should actually you know what if they're gonna make the term nimby i mean they've beaten it to death they've made nimby such a broad thing it's like anybody i don't like is a nimby so like some you know palo alto like mansion owners a nimby but i'm also a nimby as a tenant organizer. i am yeah i'm, I'm like, like also it's like who's not a homeowner but, that makes five figures and i'm somehow a nimby Die. Yeah, but 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 okay, okay, yeah, because you want to make the term NIMBY like popular in usage or whatever, then like don't don't complain when I call you a NIMBY too, because you are you're being one right now. And like it it was so that was the thing with Lola, and it was the other thing I want to point out really quickly is that's the thing. It's like 
you're actually um, like a lot the 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 sort of UMB friendly politicians and the UMB like people. Not every, not all of them supported got involved. Not in all UMBs. Well, I don't want to go with that, but you know, but the ones, <laughs> but the ones who really, the ones who really did, it was really um, illuminating because I was like, actually, you can't, you don't have the brain power to process that you're actually participating in the same systems that you think you're fighting by wanting to build condos in the mission or whatever. But like, also it's like, I really think some of them like just have not done enough thinking to actually understand that. I don't know how much it is that they actually know it, but that, that's why I keep going back to this idea of liberalism. Cause it's like, you know, there are definitely right-wingers, there are conservatives or, you know, um, market urbanists or libert techno libertarians sort of involved in this on the housing side. But there's also just like, sort of like, I'm a good liberal. And it's funny cause they criticize the NIMBYs for correctly criticize them for being like, oh, you know, I have a, uh, love is love black lives matter lawn sign in san francisco right but i don't want affordable housing in my neighborhood they're correct to criticize them for that but they're also doing the same thing and 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 so that's 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 kind of like to tie it back to the housing thing that's one thing i thought of with respect to what happened at lowell but you know i mean it's just it, it it's it's the worst part i'll say about the last thing i'll say about lowell and the worst part about it uh well not there's a lot of bad parts about it but it's also, it was like, I do think it was related, even though th these people will never say this. They were like, I voted to recall the school board, but I'm like a good progressive. I'm a good liberal, et cetera. I'm just a frustrated parent. Refused to actually make the connection between all of the right-wing attacks that are happening at, on school boards across this country. They were like, well, that's not us, right? That's not me. Um, and that's again, going back to sort of like the contradictions of liberalism and the internal contradictions that liberals have in their own heads, because I would ask them, it was like, well, you don't think these things are related? You don't think the fact that there's like some insane venture capitalist who fund, funded Ron DeSantis also funding, who hosted a fundraiser or something for Ron DeSantis also funding this recall. You don't think that all those horrible attacks, like where like, you know, there's like insane right-wing parents, like screaming about critical race theory, et cetera. You don't think that's related to what you're doing here? And they would just say, like, with all honesty, like, no. And I was like, well, you're wrong. It is. And and so, yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's going. Yeah, going back to what you were saying too about like just the the weirdness of, of the Bay Area and San Francisco in particular in terms of this contradiction between like who we think we are and who we really are. <laughs> like, I, mean, I think it's just in general, like what's kind of mind boggling about this specific moment in history where there is this resurgence of the sometimes pretty fucking on the nose fascist right, you know, and, uh, and, you know, at the same time we have like, you know, kind of run of the mill liberals or you want to, you know, let's, you know, we can ironically call them shit libs or whatever, but, you know, it's starting <laughs> to kind of get a little mixed up. And I think that the best example of this is like turfs, like the, the trans exclusive mm -hmm. radical feminism where, mm -hmm. you know, you see that there's this like fascist project to scapegoat trans people to usher in a horrific right-wing agenda. And then see like, liberals starting to go along with it with this like language that is maybe a bit more woke of like oh well like you know i'm just concerned about you know women being safe you know in in prison and we have to worry about sexual assault and like I, which obviously we do but this is such like a 
the, the, the people we have to worry about being sexually assaulted are like trans women being in a men's prison. That's extremely fucking dangerous, you know, but right, it's right, just right, like, right. you know, it, it's like, um, I mean, it makes sense when like looked at from like a Marxist perspective, because, you know, people are ultimately, you know, except for uh, some like uh, lovable class traders here and there are going to end up <laughs> siding with their, their class interests, you know, which like right. at, at this point is going to be this like um, increasingly right wing crackdown on labor, you know, militarized police expansion. And, and it's just, it's, it's getting really confusing because it's like uh, with these like centrist people, it's like, okay, like, where are you on, on any of this at this point? You know? <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you see this, like, I mean, I was even thinking about this with respect to Roe, like and connecting it back to housing. It's like, uh, like all this housing Twitter stuff that you and I have to deal with. I mean, it's it's kind of like, it's wild. Like I kind of think of it, you know, like especially NIMBY versus YIMBY. I kind of think of it like as a war between like the current petty bourgeoisie and the aspiring petty bourgeoisie, but that's like a civil war between the petty bourgeoisie, the potential petty bourgeoisie versus the one that exists. But like, yeah, I mean, in the middle of a massive fascist onslaught and it's just like, there's like, what are we doing here? I don't know. Um, yeah, and the petty bourgeoisie, I mean, if we look at history, it's, it's pretty likely to, to go full fast. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right exactly, now, so, exactly. Uh, are the, you know, they're, they're going to fall like dominoes, but at, at what pace, you know? Yeah, but that was the, that was, a, it was a funny thing, because one of the really, like, uh, this, uh, another person who got completely dogpiled on housing Twitter for saying something was like, uh, uh, um, her name's Kiyanko. I don't actually know her super well. She's like a planning scholar, and all she had said, and they still make fun of her for it, was like, "Oh, like, like it's like Nimby versus Yumbi seems like a barren framing, or at least an uninteresting one." And I was like, "Yeah, she's right. Like, the fascists uh, yeah. are coming from us. The fascists are coming from us right now. What the hell are you doing?" Like, anyway, but that's that's to tie the housing stuff back on the other stuff. But it is, it is funny to like. I mean, I am like kind of contextualizing the sort of like day-to-day -day pettiness or whatever or stuff that I might have to deal with like in my like work um and then trying to like think about this huge big thing that's like this huge big thing happening of this like 40 50 year right-wing project like coming to coming to full fruition at the same time and like yeah, trying to hold it, both it, of those like, things in my head I think like part of the like the, to me like the sort of you know the the, the real-time lesson here is that I mean, capital will just do whatever it, it needs to. It's not it's right. not attached to, you know, woke, anti-woke, whatever. Like if, mm -hmm. it, if, if it serves capital to uh, take away everyone's reproductive rights, then it will do that. If it serves capital to, to, you know, look a little bit more like, you know, rainbow capitalism, like the person in your taking the sense away from homeless people has a leather vest on then that'll do that like it's you know it's just it's kind of like this nationwide battle right now for how to crush this like uh resurgent labor movement this tenants movement mm -hmm. you know all all of the things that people are trying to do to like fight back against you know these 
increasingly difficult material conditions that we've faced since the pandemic, you know? Right, right. No, totally. And, you know, I mean, it's just, um, I think it's like, I think there, I mean, I do, I do think, and I will say like, there are a lot of people like who are genuinely like in good faith trying to like make this housing their issue in the sense that it's not just about, you know, I can't afford housing and I'm an upwardly mobile urban professional. There are like, you know, there, it, like, that's what I mean by sort of like being like, you know, a good liberal. You're like, oh, I, I read this one book about redlining and I'm really upset about it. And I, I'm going to like try to do the right thing. Of course, they think the right thing is building mostly more market rate housing and gentrifying communities, which is the wrong thing. But um, yeah, yeah, it's also like kind of like what I would think of as like the, the stereotype of like a, you know, an Elizabeth Warren type people person. Like these, these people yeah, are, are, yeah, are in totally. here too of like, you know, you gotta like the, the like Ezra Klein's have got, I don't know what, where, what he is on housing or not, but just no, he's, Ezra Klein's a huge Yambi. Yeah. Okay. So just like <laughs> these people that are like, you know, or like Michael Hobbs or any of these people that some of them seem like nice people that I would in, enjoy having a cup of coffee with or whatever, mm-hmm. but you know, like Elizabeth Warren, until the 2020 election was one of my personal heroes you know like I really I think that there are some progressive liberals that have extremely good intentions and believe fully that technocratic solutions can save us and the thing is is like if they were right that'd be fucking amazing. Like, yeah, if, if you were right, you know, like, it would be amazing. I will tell you this all the time. If you were right, it would be great. Yeah, and the thing is, is like what I think, you know, that type of like wonkish technocratic mm-hmm. analysis lacks a lot of the time is not good intentions. It's that like we have passed the point where things like that can even happen like there's only like capitalism is only it's just rapidly getting more and more unequal and no little white papers are going to stop it because you know that's just not what capitalism is right right actually i think i'm slightly plagiarizing this critique from an old episode of another podcast i listened to called trash future which is really great Oh yeah, I met one of those guys. I met Milo. He's really cool. Oh, nice. <laughs> I've, I've actually, I don't think I've ever actually met any of them in real life. I guess they all live in England. So, uh, like, yeah. but they're really funny. That's like one of my favorite podcasts, but I think they had a, a long time ago, they had a really good critique about, or a couple of years ago, they had a really good critique of Elizabeth Warren that was related to, which is something I appreciated because my first like tech job was actually like financial stuff. So it's like, like, all these creepy derivatives and stuff like managing the trades data for hedge funds like the most the job that made the most sellout job in the world my first job out of college but the one that made me like the most hardcore marxist like on earth um, not that i i'm not the most hardcore marxist on earth but i felt like it but it reminded me because i remember what like you know like it was like the sort of like elizabeth warren's like incredibly smart and does all of this like stuff about her whole thing is about like prudential regulation and that's what the trash feature guys have brought up like prudential regulation but the whole problem with that and i do think that's related to housing too when people are like well yeah i read a book that redlining was bad right and 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 i want to fix it is like it's they're related because it's like it's you're you're trying to fix the last the last crisis that already happened you're not anticipating the next crisis that is about to happen yeah 
and I think that's like I think that's kind of like a common thread here um in terms of like you know there are definitely people like I do want like there are people coming at this with really with good faith and like I have a friend who I won't name but you know they grow up they grew up in a in a community in the bay area that's so exclusionary um and they're a communist now but like they they grew up in uh but they got involved with you know with um sort of the urbanist movement or etc um but they they grew up in a place that was so unequal and so rich that like there's not like almost not a single apartment building in the entire city like and and you know that like you know one of their parents was harassed for trying to like do school's desegregation work so they came at it in good faith and then of course they ended up once again like they yeeted themselves out of yimby and just became a full-on commie uh, a full marxist but you know they were like that's what attract that's what attracts me to this kind of housing act that's what attracted me to this kind of housing activism is because i saw all that segregation around me and i wanted to fix it and i think that's not just true i don't want to like just pick on like yimby's all the time like, i think that's true for like just how like american a lot of like good faith like sort of liberals are feeling in general on any issue not just housing but yeah yeah. And with everything that's going on with Roe, I mean, like I've obviously over the last couple of days had a lot of really conflicted thoughts about that when like, or even like being out in the streets, like marching today, um, which I was with like the alternative left pride folks blocking the street. We were not, I didn't go to the main pride march, <laughs> but, but I was thinking about that today because it was like, yeah, I mean, I, I'm curious to see how, you know, sort of like, centrists and liberals are going to actually like continue with, with not just with respect to abortion rights um but how like they're going to deal with the fascist onslaught in general and i mean i also am like worried that there's going to be you know i'm not really looking forward to a take from like matt fucking iglesias being like actually the the if if the left if, if the left really wanted to win we'd take some like middle position on abortion or come soon i mean it'll it be, will yeah it'll be purity tests it'll be like you know it'll be all like it, i mean that that will definitely happen as it does with every other activist movement be it yeah. you know queer rights black lives matter defund the everything. police everything. you yeah. know i mean we gotta wrap up here in a second but i mean my personal thesis is that there's about to be not that many liberals anymore because <laughs> uh you know i mean the worse things get and they're getting worse at a, an extremely rapid pace the worse things get like the you know the, the more unattractive uh marginal improvement becomes right and yeah. people are starting to ask themselves you know like i've seen the feminists that i know both in my life and on twitter kind of fall into two camps which is, you know, what, like the older people, I, I hate generational analysis, but it really is like this, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, like the older people are like, you know, well, we got to vote, you know, Joe Biden is doing the best he can and Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, just all the kind of pundity type excuses for why we can't actually do nothing, you know, do anything. And then, you know, the other camp of like younger women, even, you know, people who are like, let's say, you know, Elizabeth Warren supporters, definitely not socialist or communist or anything, uh, but kind of, you know, sort of be like, no, like, fuck you. Like, I actually want yeah. my rights and it's fucking devastating that uh, people are being, you know, forced to carry 
uh, carried to term when they don't want to have a baby and, you know, no exceptions for rape and incest and just like the, you know, the, the crazy, like, um, brutality of what's happening right now. Like a lot of people who have been, you know, incrementalists in the past are like, not okay with it anymore and are starting to I think see one by one like little uh, kernels popping that like it's actually not really possible to do anything about this without sort of questioning okay why isn't our government accountable to us and what we want like why doesn't it matter that 70 percent of people support women having the right to choose and and that's not the way it is you know right yeah yeah I think you're right and I, I am seeing that too in my own like community my own family etc um you know and and I, I I do I that is that is a sign of hope I do think that people are being I do think people are definitely being radicalized but you know. I mean I think it, like I think that some people are getting radicalized right like I think that some and it well no I think everyone not everyone but a lot of people are getting radicalized but Unfortunately, some of those people are getting radicalized towards like the wrong side, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, or, and there's a lot of, I mean, there's also a lot of like, there's a lot of grifters on the left, quite frankly, who want to yeah, like take advantage I, of people's anger. And I'm saying this, like, you know, I worked for the, I worked for the Bernie campaign in 2020 and there's like, you know, there's folks who are were like big Bernie supporters who kind of feel kind of lost right now. And they're getting sucked into like, I mean, you know, what's his face, that comedian guy, Jimmy Dore. Jimmy Dore, there we go. And uh, yeah, or like they're getting, they're getting kind of sucked into that kind of stuff where it's like, just, it's just manipulating their, their righteous and like well-placed, well-deserved anger, but not towards like, not towards a, like any kind of collective or liberatory project. So, I mean, we got to worry about that too. There's a lot of things to worry about, but there's also like, just cause somebody radicalizes doesn't mean they're going to radicalize in the right direction, but we have to like yeah. do our best to taste socialists to kind of try to create some structure or some kind of organization that's going to take, you know, take advantage of that, which for me, I mean, DSA for all its faults is going to be like, I, I like I'm committed to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and dramatic as it is all the goddamn time. I, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, not to, uh, not to, not to diss my anarchist comrades, <laughs> but, uh, I do think that, you know, some leaders would help here. So. Yeah. 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 We, <laughs> We don't have a ton of a bench right now, and that's a problem. Um, so, Shavanti, where can people find you and your reply guys online? Uh, you can find me at Ashanti. Not uh, it's U H S H A N T I on Twitter, um, and wherever I if I if it's my tweets about housing, uh, you will find plenty of reply guys. More reply guys than you could possibly dream of. So yeah. Yeah, do not. I, I would just go ahead and recommend to anyone listening to this show to just go ahead and block uh, Sam D. Nineteen ninety five, king of the incel yimbies. And that's not Chalky's opinion. That's that's I take responsibility for this opinion. <laughs> but well, I mean, yeah, he's he's. Let, I'll I'll leave it. I'll leave it at this. Where he's not my favorite person in the world either. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chalky, this has been a blast. Uh, thank yeah. you so much for coming on the show. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. 
If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash replyguys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land this land is